Be excited today. We've got two very special guests and good friends of ours. We've got Carl Morris and Gary Nickel. Now, this podcast is, we could have gone on for about three or four hours, but these guys are amazing coaches. They've been in the, in the golf game a long time, and not only do they understand the science and the research of this, but they are in the trenches working with golfers, and these golfers are some of the best players in the world, major champions amongst regular golfers. And they've co-authored three best-selling books, The Lost Art of Putting, The Lost Art of the Short Game, and The Lost Art of Playing Golf. And today we wanted to get them on to really not only sort of talk about why they created these three books, but you'll know by now that myself and Pierce are on a mission to really just help people get better at golf. And yes, the golf swing's important, but what does it really take to get better at golf and improve your score, have more fun on the golf course? And these guys certainly know how to do that. And just to give you a bit of background on both of these guys today, Gary is co-founder and coaching director at the Tour Pro Experience Golf Schools. This is up at Archerfield Links in Scotland. And he's been coaching since the late 1980s, literally helping thousands of golfers all over the world, including European Tour professionals, Ryder Cup players, coaching at all the majors. So, so Gary has got unbelievable experience really working at seeing what it takes to actually play this game really well. Carl Morris is one of the world's leading golf performance coaches. Now, Carl's We've known Carl for a long time. He's had a huge impact on us from helping us understand really how to get better at golf, but as coaches and also understand the mind. And Carl's worked with six major winners over and over 100 tour professionals, including people like Louis Eustace and Darren Clark, Graham McDowell, Lee Westwood, Paul McGinley, Ian Woosnam, just to name a few. And what we love about Carl is that he, he not only knows his stuff, and both these guys the same really, they have an amazing gift of being able to to use the knowledge and the science and the research, but combine that with their practical experience and give you very simple, understandable, actionable tools that can really help you game. This podcast was just brilliant for us. We really enjoyed it. We could have gone on for a, for a long, long time because there's so many useful things and so much knowledge that these guys have that we, uh, we just wanted to keep picking their brains. But we know you're going to enjoy this one. If you are listening to this, then screenshot this, tag us in and the other guys over on Instagram and uh, let us know your thoughts and feedback. But without further ado, please welcome Gary Nichol and Carl Morris to the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Carl, Gary, how the devil are both of you? Very good, Piers. It's uh, yeah, good to be back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Again. How long has it been since we were filming? It's been a long time, obviously, but let's, let's not try and figure that out. <laughs> Ooh, probably three years, I would say. Wow. At least three years. Yeah, it's gone real quick, real that quick. Has, hasn't it? Nothing changed the world since then, has it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've got that, obviously, that COVID thing that happened as well in between. Oh, yeah. so, thanks so much, guys, for obviously coming on the podcast. And I think, you know, we've got a lot of time for you guys. And so should the people who are listening to this podcast now, because you've just finished the third, the triumvirate is now complete of your Lost Art books. And Carl, this is a question to you, I suppose. We think these books are excellent and every golfer can improve them their game by just reading them. What made you do this? What was the 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 igniter behind doing this? Yeah. What made you do it? <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the short answer to a good question, Piers, is that uh, we a few years ago, myself and Gary uh, were doing putting clinics up at, up at Archerfield. And, um, you know, we'd spend a whole day with people and give them very little technical instruction. But we were just seeing some amazing results. And we kind of put some ideas down and we kind of narrowed it down to about five, six principles. And when we'd written these five or six principles, thought, there must be a book in this. 
And then as we, we started talking about, about that, what, what, what would be a good title of the book and, you know, the idea that great putters, that there is the science involved, obviously, in putting, but really the greatest putters that we can think back in history, you know, your, your Seves, your Ben Crenshaws, this, there was always a suggestion that they were artists on the green. It's kind of like they were painting the canvas with the golf ball going into the hole. So, you know, we came up with the idea of the lost art of putting and that, 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 was pretty successful and we thought well we need to write another one about the lost art of the game and then once we'd written that we thought we've, we've got to finish off two two's not a good number so we thought <laughs> we, need, we need we need we need three for the the trilogy so that was where we ended up with the lost art of the of the short game but but you know it's been it's been it's been so encouraging that there seems to be there seems to be a gap there that there's a lot of great information out there in terms of the game there's a lot of good instruction but it's about actually then being able to take that to the golf course and and kind of connect back to something that I think people, a lot of people lose, which is just the sheer thrill of creating golf shots and, you know, not, not particularly an agenda that, uh, that goes too deep beyond that really. And it, it's, you know, the, the ideas seem to have resonated with people. And, and do you feel, I mean, you mentioned it there as well. Do you feel, I suppose, maybe a question to you, Gary, do you feel that we have um, moved away from that side of things in terms of, you know, this art of playing golf with technology and coaching and everything advancing, do you think that actually it's moving away from, from the game and how it's played? Very much so. And I know you guys are obviously big advocates of getting people out in the golf course as well. And, you know, you think about back to when we were all kids, where we learned to play golf was on the golf course. You know, there were no launch monitors, there were no, well, I can remember a time when there were no video cameras, believe it or not, when I started coaching golf. Uh, the first video I had took full-size VHS cassettes, took about three of us to lift it. The battery, God, you could hardly move it. Um, so I think with the introduction of a lot of technology, we become a, it was very easy to become a bit linear and a bit too technically focused. And, you know, if you hark back and look back to all the greatest players, certainly who Carl and I watched growing up as kids, they did not have technically perfect golf swings, but they were brilliant to watch. They're great fun to watch. Your Trevinos, your Sevies, all these guys, they're just amazing golfers. But then it became very kind of popular in the mid eighties, I guess, into the, the late eighties and the early nineties to, to have the model swing or the perfect swing. You know, some of the top players in the world, Fowler, for example, you know, said about remodeling his golf swing with the help of David Ledbetter. And they kind of reshaped the way that golf coaching or golf teaching instruction, whatever you want to call it, was, was viewed. And a lot of people went down, or myself included, and I think Carl was very much the same. Uh, and we perhaps didn't benefit as greatly as someone like Baldo did. But then again, we didn't have his talent or his work ethic. So <laughs> no real surprise there. Uh, I think, yeah, I just think we got away from playing golf to we've all heard this you know you want to be playing golf not golf swing mm. but i think we've all fallen into that trap at some point yeah, yeah definitely 100%. i mean you know we think like you say as golf coaches and, and lovers of the game you know we continue some like sometimes to still go down that path i think because it's ingrained in us um, yeah. and it's become culturally the way things are so you know we, we weren't trying to change that by any stretch of the imagination we just thought there was a gap for a bit more of the artistry and a bit more of the creativity because that's, you know, when you're sometimes when you're faced with that really, really 
difficult shot, you've got to bend it around a tree or hit it higher or lower, whatever it is, and it comes off, you think, wow, that was amazing. That's why I play golf. Yeah. Not to stand there and hit dead street shot after dead street shot. I mean, that's maybe I've got a very short attention span, but I'd get bored pretty quickly doing that. Even if I, not, if, even if I was capable, not that I am capable of hitting it dead straight all the time, but if I was, you know, I, I just don't see golf that way. It's not the game I grew up with. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. I think back to some of the practice that I do still, I practice trying to hit a lot of straight shots. Yeah. And then when, when I get on the golf course, it's very rare that I'm hitting straight shots. You know, yeah. you've got breeze, you've got an uneven lie, you've got yeah. different trajectories. And yeah. I'm just thinking now, I'm going, well, my practice isn't quite as good as it could be either if I'm going to the range, but it's just a pattern that we fell into. All guilty of it. I don't think anyone's immune. Absolutely. Let, let's go yeah. into, oh, sorry, carry on, Carl. Yeah, I was just going to. I was just going to say, Andy, that we actually start the book um, detailing two two of the greatest shots that have, we believe that have ever been played in the history of the game. You know, one of them, everybody who's, who's listening to this has probably seen at some point, was the famous shot that Tiger hit on the 16th in the 2005 Masters. You know, in your life, when the when the Nike logo just fell into the <laughs> hole, um, and then the other one was the the, the shot that Seve. It, it, it would need to be people of the same vintage as me and Gary to remember this one, but it was it was Seve when he announced himself on the world stage in 76 at Royal Birkdale. And, and he played an incredible shot on the last hole to finish second, tied second with Jack Nicholas, whereby it was a tinder dry golf course. It was, the, it was this long got summer of, of 76. And he got no shot if he played a standard shot, if he played a standard lob shot. And he, and he just fashioned this incredible pitch and run shot through a, a tiny little gully in, in, in between the bunkers on the 18th at Birkdale there. And, and Henry Longus, when the ball rolled out onto the green, he said, that's not possible. And, mm. and Seve, Seve just knocked the putt in. And even Johnny Miller mentioned it in his winning speech. And you look at both of those shots that, you know, you can go on YouTube and, 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 and have a look at it. Those, those are a perfect example of, of two players, two of the greatest players that ever played the game, just being completely absorbed in the moment, creating a shot. I mean, you know, just, just look at Tiger on the 16th and just watch his eyes. And he seems to be verbalizing to himself what he's going to do with the golf ball. And, and at that moment, it cannot be about science. It cannot be about just positions. It's about something else that's, it's kind of quite intangible. And I suppose that's the difficulty with the art is that is the science is very tangible, isn't it? You yeah, know, we can yeah. measure hip the rotation number, yeah. and we can measure ground reaction forces and things like that. But it's difficult to it's difficult to measure imagination. It's difficult to measure creativity. But that, that actually is, 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 is the juice that brings all the game together. And we've all experienced those shots where we've created something in our mind. And then the body's organized around that and we and we've produced that shot. You know, and I think, you know, one of the central themes of the, all of the three books is that we talk about the idea that people say golf is, is not a reaction sport, but it actually is because you react to what's going through your mind before you step into the shot. And, and if all you've got going through your head is lots of positions, you're cutting off a huge element of the game that potentially could liberate you to not only some great shots, but potentially some amazing experiences on the course. Yeah, it's amazing. We, we've often referred a lot of our students to go and watch the Tiger Woods video just yeah. to see what he does and see how he's experiencing mm -hmm. the shot before he's actually playing the shot. And I think it's um, it's certainly something that the majority of golfers don't do. And I think something we hear from, from let's say, amateur golfers, and I think I suppose on the 16th as well, that type of shot required him to think 
it wasn't a, just a basic chip and run. It was like, right, I've got to chip it up the bank. The level of difficulty or complexity almost forced him. And this is what we hear off a lot of amateur golfers where they say, when I've got a really difficult shot where I need to bend it round a tree, I seem to pull it off. But when I've got a straightforward one, I don't really pull it off. So I suppose they need to create or maybe ask the right questions when it's a straightforward shot to be able to visualize and experience the shot they want to create when it's quite simple, if that makes sense. hundred percent. And the, yeah, Absolutely. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, that's the, that's the great beauty of, of, the, of the imagination in the sense that, you know, you could, you could stand on the, for instance, as a, as a, as a training um, device, you know, you could stand on the range and, and put two alignment sticks stuck in the ground and create a gate just in front of you, you know, a few, a few feet wide. And you could on the range create shots through that gate. Well, the beauty of that is that, all right, you're not going to be able to take the alignment sticks onto the golf course in a competition, but you can imagine that they're there. You, you can actually, you can actually engage your imagination to see that gate in front of you. And I think, you know, again, relating back to Seve, that Seve talked about that every shot that he played around the greens, it was like a movie just appeared in his head and he, and he responded to that movie. And I think, you know, what we're saying here is that I don't think we spend enough time in practice engaging the imagination because we're just standing there working on positions. Now, both me and Gary would be 100% behind the idea that there's a place for all of that. We're not saying just swing it any old way and just, you know, all you've got to do is see the shot. Because plainly, if you've got a dreadful golf swing and a great imagination, you're just going to hit a lot of crap. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think, go on, sorry. No, no, you carry on, Carl, you carry on, you carry on. No, I was, I was going to say, I think, I think the idea of, of training your imagination and engaging your creativity not only not only makes the game much more fun, but it potentially ties, the, I suppose the holy grail is tying, is tying science and art together. You know, for instance, both, and Gary will go into more detail on this, you know, we're both big fans of launch monitors, you know, Trackman, track et cetera, but used in a way that, that sort of backs up the art, whereby, you know, to me, it's very valuable that if somebody can vividly imagine you know, fading the ball a few degrees or drawing it up a few degrees and then see if see if the numbers on the, on the track man match up to the image, not not just hit a shot and glance at the track man. Yeah. You know, see if see if, you know, can you feel the path a few degrees to the left? Can you feel the path a few de degrees to the right and then get the, the track man to back that up? Don't just go there without actually experiencing the feel of those movements. Yeah. Is that something, Gary, that obviously we're going to get into that now, actually, with you, Gary? Is that something that you will do a lot when you've got people hitting shots on the, on the launch monitor? Yeah. One of the first questions I ask once we get into a session using TrackMan is, do you watch golf on TV? Oh, yeah. I love watching golf on TV. Do you like the shot tracker? Oh, yeah. Golf is boring without it, isn't it? I said, well, yeah, well, you've got to agree. It's pretty dull without it at times. And I would always ask, if you could see your shot tracker before you hit your shot, do you think you'd find that helpful? Well, yeah, because it's given me a pathway to, okay, so let's have a look at your last shot and let's see if you can recreate that shot. Or the last session when they've been hitting the, sh the shots they wanted to, we could go into their history mm -hmm. and dig out, you know, a really good example of one of the best shots that they hit. And whether it's a high draw, low fade, whatever it may well be, whatever is called for in that situation, okay. Do you think you could create that shot just as we've seen it on TV? Oh, I don't know, I don't know. Well, it was your shot, so you can definitely create it. <laughs> you can. Yeah, we're not asking you to recreate something that Rory's done. We're asking you to recreate something that you've done. 
and it's incredible how you know Carl talked about it being a, a sport where you react to what happens in your mind. Mm-hmm. So you know we're, we're big on asking questions. You know, what's a really good shot look like? Is it possible you could hit that shot? Is it possible this could be the best shot you've ever hit? And just by asking, you'd be like, saying things like, "Don't hit it out of bounds here," because last time I did, I hit it out of bounds and I was <laughs> in the water. Yeah, you know, yeah, those things, man. Yeah, that's <laughs> an that option. Working for for me quite a while ago. That strangely enough, <laughs> <laughs> I hear exactly what you're saying because that's what you hear, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think that's so. exactly what you hear. But and again, you know, don't hit it out of bounds. I didn't even realize it wasn't out of bounds until you mentioned <laughs> it. But if you ask yeah. a person guy, girl, young, old, doesn't matter. Is it possible you could hit a shot that starts here and finishes over there, reaches the top of its flight, and just, you know, what color would that shot be? But is it red? Is it yellow? Is it blue? Is it a thick line? Is it a thin line? It's very much down to the individual to personalize and then make their own. And it's incredible how, given that clarity of intention of the task, that the brain and body, as Carl and I have often talked about, will organize the movement required to make that happen. Yeah. If you're trying to hit a nice little soft draw, your brain won't allow your body to aim 50 yards left Mm. and swing the club from out to in. It's just not going to happen, is it? No, not at all. But if you've got that very clear intention of that shot in mind, so you've got a very clear task. Basically, we're trying to solve a puzzle. Mm. And as human beings, we've evolved throughout the years by solving puzzles and performing tasks. And if we, we view a shot, a golf shot as a, a task, can you, can you hit it from point A to point B? Yeah, I can do that. Watch this. But if you ask them to manufacture a golf swing with 27 different body parts and movements, <laughs> you become a bit detached from the task then. Yeah. yeah. We are pretty good at performing tasks as human beings, really, aren't we? So, so again, another question to you then, Gary. So look, for golfers who, like Carl said, who haven't quite got the best of golf swings and maybe mm-hmm. want to improve this, how, yeah. how do you go about doing this, getting them to improve their golf swings and maybe even doing it on the golf course as well? Because I know, obviously, as we said, that's a big, yeah, yeah. A big area where we all want to get our golfers out to. So is that something yeah. you do on the golf course? And how Absolutely. can the listeners doing, sorry, listening to this, how can they sort of glean some of that information? I think it's a case of almost allowing the the golf course to be your guide Mm -hmm. and the golf shots to be your guide. You know, what I've found over the years is as if you really focus in or tune into or pay attention to the shots, your golf swing will change. Your golf swing will will improve. So it's a kind of reverse engineering process rather than thinking I've got to get my swing right in order to hit that shot. Actually by creating the shot, your golf swing has to move in a more efficient manner anyway. And, you know, ask, let the golf course ask you the questions. You know, what is the shot here? Now, if the pin's tucked right over a bunker, short right, it's not going to be a big high draw, really, is it? Or a low draw going into that flag. It's, that's going to be highly unlikely as a right-hander, obviously, unless you're a left-hander, then it's going to play right into your hands. But it may well require a big high soft fade. So can you play that shot? Well, I don't know. I can slice it. Well, okay, let's aim a little bit further left and see if you can get the ball to work back towards the target. If we were to move the flag to the left-hand side of the green, what would you do? Well, I'd probably want to start at the middle and hit a draw. Can you hit that shot? Well, I normally slice. Okay, I'm not asking what you've done in the past. Is it possible you could hit that shot today? I don't know. Let's give it a go. Okay, so what's a really good version of that shot look like? Well, it starts, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 feet right of the flag, and it just gently draws in towards the flag. Okay, let's have a go. 
can you do it? And I'm often astonished at how people's ability to create shots just goes sky high through the roof when they're not thinking about the bad shot, obviously, not thinking about the out of bounds. <laughs> and they're not thinking about their backswing. They're not thinking about shallowing the shaft on the way down. They're not thinking about bowing their left wrist or flexing their right nostril, whatever it may well be. Um, they just get involved and engrossed and really just totally into the shot. Yeah, it's really letting that environment shape, um, I suppose, the creations in your mind, really, isn't Absolutely. it? It's just going, well, what have I got in front of me and yeah. what do I need or what, what do I see? Yeah. That can that, that I can do that that I can access really, and then letting things get to work almost. Yeah, and awareness. You know, you talked about uneven lies, wind direction. You know, most people are blissfully unaware of how that's going to in how these factors are going to influence the shot, mm. not just the shot shape, but the shot making and the shot decision. Yeah. Yeah, no, I actually wrote that down. Let the course guide your shots. I actually really like that. I think that's a... yeah, that's because the course is well, the course or the course designer is the one asking the questions. Mm. So you know, what if you can get into the, the course designer's mind? What question is he asking me here? You know, I had someone out in the golf course this morning. And we're, you know, what's the shot on this hole? It's a dog leg, right to left. And there's a little there's a bunker cut into a hill in the corner on the left hand corner. And it makes you think you can actually draw it or carry it. And he said, well, so it's a fade off there. So, okay, yeah, you're way smarter and way better than I am. But uh, it took me about 10 attempts to realize I couldn't actually draw it around the corner. Or if I could draw it around the corner, I was actually drawing it into the bunker because I couldn't carry it that far. But the golf course designer was making me think that I could. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So he was asking a question. I just come, kept coming up with the wrong answers. It took me a while to, to figure out the puzzle. But when it did... You know, it's a sense of satisfaction to be gained from that. Yeah. It's, it's great enjoyment. Mm. I, th I think just listening to this, this is something that I think is just miss. It's a big missing piece. It, it is a lost art, I think. And I think it's a big missing piece that people can really delve into to really get better. And something that as we're talking, I'm just thinking all the time here, and this is something that you've already mentioned about questions, is that golfers don't really ask good questions when they're on the golf course. Um, and I think when we when we're doing playing lessons, and I'm sure you're the same out on the golf course, is that one thing that we do is we'll just ask questions for them. We won't yeah. say you need to do this. We'll say, well, how is the how is that lie going to affect the flight of the ball here? Or is you know we'll ask the certain questions to get them thinking. Carl, a question for you would be, what are some from a long game perspective? What are, what are some key questions that the listeners could be asking? Let's say two or three key questions that they could ask themselves that would, that would lead to some clarity and some better performance on the course. Yeah. I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of versions of actually the same question, Andy, really. I, I, I can't go too far beyond, you know, Graham McDowell always used to say this was the, this was the golden question, and it's what, what does a good shot look like here? You know, and the, and the and the beauty of that is that that question is is not is not a statement. You're not saying I'm going to hit a good shot here, which is pass or fail. It's what does a good shot look like here, or what 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 does the best version of this shot look like? And then I think another question that they can follow up with is how does that feel? In the sense that if you've if you've been able to see what a good shot looks like, I think then once you've got that rich image of the intention, you can then feel what the implement in your hand needs to do to actually produce that shot. So, you, so you're linking the visual 
of the shot with the sort of kinesthetic sensation. And, you know, Woods talked about this, about feeling shots in his hands and his fingers and things like that. So you're linking the actual feeling of the movement to produce that shot. So, you know, when you, when you get completely engaged and engrossed in that, I think then those two simple questions, you know, you, we, and, and the beauty of this, you could, actually, you could actually go out and play around the golf and say to yourself, right, the only, my only task today is to make sure I ask two questions on every shot. You know, what does a good shot look like? How does it feel? And that is a commitment that you can keep to. You can actually, you are, you are 100% in control of that. Now, you're not 100% in control of your score. You're not 100% in control of your golf swing. But that's where people put most of their attention. And that's what creates a lot of the anxiety in the game because we're trying to control the uncontrollable, unfortunately. I know it's a cliche to say it, but, but that is not what we can control. But if you can come off the round of golf and you can say to yourself, do you know what? I went through that, that, those two questions on every shot. I didn't have a great score today, but I, I, I know for certain that I did the best I could. Now, long term, if you can have that approach, my goodness, I think you'll get so much closer to your, to your true potential. And I think your experience of the game changes as well in, in so much that it's not, you know, your whole value as a human being isn't, isn't sort of dependent on what the number is on the card <laughs> at, the, at, the end of the, at the end of the round. Do you know what it's going to be? You know, I think, I think it's brilliant to, to, have, to have two questions going on the golf course. It's so simple and it probably scares a lot of people thinking, oh, I need to be thinking of this at the top of the backswing. But I think... Mm -hmm. To just experiment with it, just go out there and just go, right, today I'm going to park all the technical thoughts and just ask those two questions. I think they'd see, they'd, they'd learn a lot about themselves and the game on the golf course by doing that. And, and write them down in your scorecard so you don't yeah. forget them. Yeah. And, and another thing that you can do with that, I, I call it the sort of perspective shift that, you know, most people go out to play around the golf and they, they go out and we've got a handicap. You know, we've got a handicap attached to our name. And straight away, we're trying to avoid losing something that we think we own, <laughs> in, in the sense that the handicap binds us to a potential score that we, and I'm quoting, should do. Now, unfortunately, then, every bogey or every double bogey is taking something away from that perception of where we should be. A different way of looking at it is, is that you go out with the idea of asking these couple of questions, and you start literally with nothing. You've got nothing on the board, no runs, no goals, no nothing. And you actually just start to think, how many shots turned out something like the images that I had in my head? So all of a sudden, it's about actually accumulating shots as opposed to trying to avoid losing shots. And it's a, it's a, it's a subtle shift that just makes the world a difference, really. Because, you know, when we're human beings, unfortunately, don't like losing what they think they own. <laughs> and 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 that that gets in the way with with golf because as I said because we, we all worship at the altar of par and the altar of par is bound together by the handicap that's attached to our name and and unfortunately I think that's one of the key reasons why people become a ten or a fifteen or a twenty is that is that psychologically they're going out with with more of an avoidance mindset rather than a kind of exploration you know and. So much is relevant to the context that you create on the golf course. The context is everything. If the context is that it's an exam paper and every shot is pass or fail, that that is high pressure. But if the context is one of, you know, what can I what can I explore? What can I create when I'm out there? If the context is one that doesn't threaten you, then that allows your body to express its capability. If the context is one of threat it's very difficult to actually create fluid motion. Mm.
it's strange, isn't it, the way you're talking about handicap there. We all think of handicap as something that's going to help us play golf, but actually it's a very big limiter, isn't it? In Absolutely. exactly the way that you've just said there. So, guys, let's talk about short game. So we actually had a question here. We had a question based on anxiety. We've already mentioned anxiety. And I think there's, there's obviously different trains of thought when it comes to short game, and there's probably more anxiety on short game shots than there is on most shots. So I'm going to throw this to both of you and maybe answer it in order of which happens first, I suppose. Okay. So if someone is, uh, has the yips and they are bricking it when they're about to play a chip shot over a bunker, what has caused that, in your opinions? Is that just being an anxious person or is that technique that has led to that? So I'll let you two serve that up however you feel best. Okay, I'm going to answer very quickly and then I'm going to throw Carl a hospital pass. Again, right? Again, you should be used to it by now, Carl. That happens all the time. <laughs> I'm going to start off the caveat of saying, well, everyone is different, so mm-hmm. who knows? It could well be poor technique, it could well be that they just don't understand how to use a golf club. I think it basically boils down to poor concept, mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. Carr will elaborate a little bit on why a yippee motion isn't necessarily a bad one, but I think that yippee motion starts from or originates with a poor concept of how the tool in your hand is going to get the ball to do what you want it to do. Yeah. It wasn't that much, it wasn't that much of a hospital pass, Gary. I've had worse than that over there. It's coming in head high, Carl. That passes. <laughs> yeah, I should finish this off. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, a lot of people who are listening might be surprised to hear me say this. I, I, I would go as far as to say that um, probably ninety-five percent of of yips do originate with with poor technique, mm-hmm. um, because of of a misunderstanding of how you're trying to apply the club in, into the ball, and you know what tends to happen is that you get you get skull shots and fat shots, and what what do people tend to do? is that they tend to think that the further back they get the ball in the stance and the further they get the hands forward, the safer that they are. And unfortunately, what that is doing is, is making the leading edge much more likely to go in first. And, and a way of thinking about it is the yip is actually the genius of the body trying to do its best for you. Because if you think about it, if you've put the ball back in your stance and your hands forward, you've taken all the loft off the club. So the flinch at the bottom is the body's last attempt to create some loft through impact. It's, it's very ineffective, but it's genius in a way what, what it's trying to do. So I think that the technical then becomes the mental in the sense that if you've hit a lot of these poor shots over the years, the anxiety is created as a result, the anticipation of what might happen. But I think the first protocol should be, as Gary said, a clear understanding of what you're trying to do with the back edge, get the back edge to interact with the ground, asking good questions. We have an exercise in the in the in the book, uh, and it's one I mean, you guys will have heard this, but I think it's, it's such an important one that really everybody who wants to improve the short game could could could, could experience. It, you know, hope you, hopefully everybody would would agree that if if you can get a player to interact the back edge of the club consistently with the ground that is a foundation for a great short game because you can control trajectory, you can control you know, landing and all the rest of it. So our recommendation would be is that you see the back edge of the club as being the wheels of a plane. It's kind of a metaphor. The back edge of the club are the wheels of a plane and you've got three possible landings on every shot. So as the plane comes into the runway, you've either got a crash landing, which obviously you don't want, that's the leading edge going in first. 
you've got an aborted landing where the pilot pulls out at the last minute and that would be the one that you scull across the green and then you've got a smooth landing now the exercise that i think everybody would benefit from is just a simple awareness exercise is where you take 10 balls and you hit 10 shots not necessarily to a specific target but your only goal is to be aware of which landing you got don't try and don't try to land it correctly just be aware of what landing you got so did you get a crash land did you get an aborted landing or did you get a smooth landing and the thing is with that when you're in the awareness mode it's much more important to know where your golf club is rather than where it should be a lot of people know where the club should be but they don't know where it actually is <laughs> and what you what, you know Gary we, we've, we've done it many times Gary you know you get people to do this exercise and they stand there and they go you know crash landing crash landing aborted aborted and then all of a sudden mm. the body starts to organize oh that was a smooth one that was a smooth one okay what would you what would you potentially do with your setup to to assist you landing the 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 plane smoothly and and you know, nine times out of 10 people will get that, get the setup more neutral and, you know, they won't have the shaft, the same element of shaft lean. And they kind of, they kind of almost fix themselves because of a really good understanding and a really good concept, as Gary said. Yeah, it's, unfortunately, it doesn't really matter how much you spend on a new driver, putter or wedge. The one thing that's always missing is a user's manual. <laughs> Uh, so no, I'm not saying that we've written the, the ultimate user's manual for, for the short game, but we we were very fortunate enough, or we were very fortunate in the fact we, we had a couple of really fascinating conversations with, with Bob Wokey. Now, I'd met Bob many, well, many, many years ago at an Open Championship and also spent a bit of time with Roger Cleveland. So, you know, if you're going to speak to anyone about the short game, we thought, well, it might be an idea to speak to the guys who actually designed the golf clubs that we're all going to use. Mm. And the chats we had with Bob were just were fascinating. And uh, do you guys, have you guys met him or have you seen him around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He's, he's amazing, isn't he? He's about yeah. 82, looks about 55 or something. Yeah. And behaves like a 30-year-old. He just loves <laughs> life. You know, as we've often said, you know, he is the ultimate advertisement for the California lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it does for you. Get me on that plane. ASAP. <laughs> But, you know, he, he talked about learning how to use the tools. If you were a, a carpenter, you'd know how to use a hammer, a chisel, a saw, whatever. You know, you, you become, if you're a cricketer, you'd be very in tune with the bat. If you're a batsman, if you're a tennis player, you'd be very aware of what the racket's doing, a squash player, whatever. But yeah, as golfers, we tend not to really delve too deeply into why golf clubs are designed the way they are. You know, the, the various grinds, bounds. We don't really like the term bounds because it puts a fear of God into most people. Because it think, you know, by definition, you think the club is going to bounce. So we, we'd rather refer to it as the back edge because then, you know, it doesn't sound threatening. Whereas the bounce sounds, oh my God, it's going to bounce off the ground and hit the ball right in the teeth. And it's going to go flying across the green at an alarming rate into that bunker of the bush at the back of the green when they would never be seen again. But if you just explain to people again going back to concepts once they have a, a very clear concept of why that tool was designed the way it was and the jobs it was designed to do all of a sudden light bulbs go off all over the place and they can play certain shots you know as carl said if you've got the ball too far back in your stance your brain doesn't see enough loft what are you going to try to do when you're trying to pitch it over that bunker you're going to try and throw some loft at it at the last minute Every now and then you might time on and get it and think you will have cracked it, but you'd really just got lucky once once in a while. You're either going to duff at the leading edge or you're going to know you're going to duff at the leading edge. 
you think you're going to crash land, so you abort the landing, pull up again, and you hit it in the teeth, skull it into the face of the bunker. But once you can learn how to surf the turf is another term we, we really love. So you surf the turf with the back edge of the sole, and the ball just gets gathered up on the way past. The loft of the club is what gets the ball up in the air. You know, I always say to people, these wedges were designed to get the ball up in the air. We weren't. <laughs> <laughs> so if you just apply, learn how to apply the tool correctly, going back to concepts, and once you've got a clear understanding of the concept and the tool that you have in your hand, then your technique can't help but improve. Yeah. So it's a great switch really, isn't it, to go instead of trying to get the body to, or sorry, to get the club to move by moving the body and focusing on the body, you're really aware of how you move in the club. Absolutely. And then the body takes care of the movement itself. It's a switch from, let's say, internal to external, isn't it? Correct. The body supports the movement of the golf club rather than the other way around. Yeah. And I think from, from our coaching, as soon as we do that with golfers, it's just, it's very, very freeing. <laughs> it well, it's liberating. A lot of the... I was just about to say, you guys have seen that, I don't know how many times. And it's like, you just see the light bulbs going off. And you, you think, oh, you say, yeah, you learned that. I didn't teach you that. You learned that. And that's when the real learning takes place. And that's when the, that's real learning that sticks and stays with them. I think yeah. the, the biggest thing for people listening to this is and something that I will use all the time. And I've used it myself with my short game is that if it ever gets to a point where you are crashing the plane, I will actually ask golfers, I will train golfers to duff it really well. Mm. So they can hit three or four inches before the ball and still hit great shots and say, and get them to do that on purpose. Say, right, I want you to hit the ground before the ball, you know, hit it three or four inches and then just, and just, just get the, then let's see what happens to the shots yeah. before they know it. They've hit a shot, which doesn't carry as far because you hit the ground a bit early, but it runs further because there was no spin on it. And it has yeah. the same impact as a, as a good shot. Yeah. The thing is, the thing is, the thing is with that Piers, it's such an important point to make when you, when you're using the leading edge, you've got zero margin for error. Mm -hmm. When you use the back edge, I mean, it, it's the, you know, it's, it's something that Gary showed me, you know, you can stand there and it's amazing how far behind you can hit the ball. Sorry, if, amazing how far behind you can hit the ground and still hit a good shot if you're using yeah. the back edge. You know, as you say, you, you would think, God, I'm bound to duff this. You know, mm -hmm. it's a great thing for people to, to experiment. How far how far behind the ball could you actually hit the ground and see what happens? And it's, it's amazing when people are given the freedom to do that. They just kick that, you know, the golf club does what it's designed to do. But the point, you know, the point that you were making, Andy, about, about external focus Everybody listening to this will be reasonably adept with the pen. They'll be reasonably adept with a screwdriver or a hammer or a toothbrush or whatever. We're designed to use tools. Now, I can't imagine anybody learned how to brush the teeth by rotating their elbow over a fixed axis. <laughs> they, they, you know, they, they, they just learn to use the implement in the hand. And that's a really skillful thing that we do, that we brush our teeth. But we're tuned in. We know what the tool is designed to do. We know how it's designed to work. And we're tuned into that. And I think there's probably no other sport where we have such a big disconnect between the implement in our hand and, and you know, what we're actually trying to do with it. You know, I was watching the, the, the Winter Olympics. And I'm sure, you know, you, we've all seen it in the last, the last few weeks or so. The, the curling, which was fascinating. And you can see, you know, the, the guy or the, or, the, or the woman letting the, and they're so in tune with the, with the, yeah. with the you know, they, they will not be thinking about wrist positions and things like that. They are so in tune with that, that <laughs> curling stone and the dexterity that they show with that. It's yeah. funny you say that. A few years ago, uh, Eve Muir had come to visit me for a lesson. Nice. And right. very, very good golfer. 
Mm. I mean, I think she she was struggling with her game at that time. I think she was up to about two or something. You know, oh, <laughs> one of these people uh-huh. really annoyed people who's absolutely brewing at everything she does. Uh, and obviously very competitive. And you know, I asked what she was struggling with. She said, well, I've got my backswings here, my backswings there. And I said, okay, what about shots? What shots are you struggling with? I said, well, she said, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to draw it at the moment, but I play my best, I hit a nice little draw. I said, right, okay, so just out of curiosity, I know we're not here to work on your putting. Uh, are you a good putter? I said, yeah, I'm actually, why? I said, well, when you're focusing on your putts, what are you focusing on? I said, well, the ball, obviously. I says, when you're curling, what are you focusing on? The stone, obviously, you know, as if I just asked her the two stupidest questions she'd ever been asked. Mm-hmm. Idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. She may as well have said that because that's what she was saying with her eyes. <laughs> and I said, how often do you film your curling technique? She said, well, why would I do that? I just, you know, it's, it's all about the stone. I said, right, okay, but you want to see what your golf swing looks like? And she just kind of looked at me, yeah, I hear you, okay. <laughs> <laughs> And I asked her, you know, asked her, what does a good, really good draw shot look like? Can you hit a high one? Can you hit a low one? And before, before I knew it, she's showing off. Yeah, watch this. Of course I can. Watch this. Stunning. Great. But what? Just again, shifting the the attention from technique to task, and allowing the the task to form the technique. Or as we talk about, you know, and we have throughout the three books, you know, does the the shot create the swing? Does the swing create the shot? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys know the answer. You've, you've yeah. seen it in action. Yeah. You've done it yourselves. It's, it's just a great message, I think, that people can switch that focus and, and just see how, how it will just change things. Yeah. Um, just just want to move on fun. to... Say again? Makes it more fun as much as anything. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. More creative. That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> we, thought we can't have fun on the golf course. It's, it's not allowed. It's not allowed. <laughs> You're not allowed to have fun. God, no. <laughs> No hoodies, no fun. Exactly. <laughs> Carl, look, I mean, one thing that's that, that, I mean, we've grown up and and sort of coached kids. And one thing that you see in junior golfers, which is very frustrating for adults sometimes when they're watching, they're going, God, they're just playing that shot with no fear. They've got like a, a, a 60 degree lob shot from 10 yards from the flag and adults looking, going, they play it with just zero fear. I suppose the two questions to this are, are really, why are they playing these shots with no fear? And what is it that the listeners can do? Um, that what, what is it the listeners can do to minimise the negative experiences that they have before they play a shot? I think one word sums up why the kids have any fear and the adults do have Andy, and that's that's history, yeah. isn't it? That, you know, history and memory. And unfortunately, you know, if you played the game long enough, you're going to create some history, and you're gonna you're gonna have some some memories. And, and unfortunately, those memories, if, if misapplied, can create a lot of anxiety. So, you know, in answer to the, to the, to, to the question, what can anybody do? Well, you can't, you know, you can't erase the past. You can't, you, can, you can't change the past story, but you can, you can decide that you're going to change the future story. And, and it's all about the questions that, that you ask afterwards. So, you know, if the question afterwards is, what were the, what were the three best short shots today? Or what was the best short shot today that I played? And you actually write that down and you actually write it out. You know, for years, I mean, you guys will have heard me say this years and years ago. I think an exercise that stood the test of time and we've got enough evidence over the years of people benefiting from it is when you play golf, just ask yourself the question, what were the three best shots today? 
and you write them out in some detail. Now, as you as you write the shots out in detail, you're not only reliving the, the, the movement that was effective, you're actually solidifying the memory of the good stuff. So you're leaving a stronger trace for the for the positive experience rather than the negative one. You know, there's a there's a guy who've done a lot of work with called Vin Harris who who talks about the idea that the, the, the mind has got he calls it Teflon and Velcro. And in the sense that we that the mind is like Velcro. For, for negative experiences, it holds on to it, but it's like Teflon for positive experiences. We just kind of brush those away as though that's what we should do. And he said, you, you know, you, you actually actively have to reverse that natural bias that the brain has for the, for the Velcro attachment to the poor, poor stuff and the Teflon dismissal of the, of, of the good stuff that we have. So, you know, that, that is, you know, for anybody serious about the game, it, it's looking at things that you can do beyond what you ordinarily would look at, you know, people wouldn't necessarily think, well, what do I do after the game of golf? Well, I'd, I'd go as far as to say what you do after the game of golf, if you're serious about your game, the way that you reflect on your experiences is, is going to be one of the key factors in how successful you become as a golfer. Because the way that you reflect on what's happened, you reflect on your experience, will either draw you forward to a possible future of, of, of excellence or it will hold you back as you, as, you, as you stay with some of the, the negative experiences. I always tell the story, it was one of the saddest ones I've ever heard really, um, doing seminars over the years. And I always remember it was, a, it was a, um, an event years ago and it was a bunch of coaches and one of the questions that we asked in the seminar was, what, what was the, what's the best score that you've ever done in your life? There's a lot of good players in the room. And this guy puts his hand up and he said, my, my best score is 60 against the power of 72. Now, I don't know about you guys. I don't know whether you can, whether you can match that. I, I, I couldn't even match that when I was asleep. So, I, you know, <laughs> never, come, never come anywhere near that. And the guy, you know, if you can shoot 60 against the power of 72, you've been, you've been given a gift for the game, I would believe. You know, you're particularly talented. But what was poignant about the story was that he said, do you know, he said, there's only one shot that I can remember from that day <laughs> where he shot 60. Wow. Which... He said, "There's literally just one shot I can remember, and obviously Jeez. you can you can you can work out what it was. He it's had a putt for fifty nine by any chance. He had a, he had a putt he had a putt for fifty nine, yeah. and he missed it, and that was the only memory they had the other day. Now the saddest part of the story was that he said, I 'I don't play golf anymore.' He said the game hurt me too much, yeah. and I just That's thought wow. it was such a sad story that you know this guy has been given a gift from the heavens to be able to play the game to shoot twelve under par." But the way the way he, he inadvertently used his memory, and the way the way he reacted to experiences in the end drove him away from the game. And it'd be interesting to know again. You know, I'm just thinking again that the, the golfers listening to this, and maybe him actually, what he would have done past the game in terms of what he would have spoke about to his friends. Would he have spoke about how much that he you know, he's missed that 59 or would he be going, I've had an amazing round today, I've shot 60. And I suppose the conversations that golfers have when they get back in the clubhouse is equally as important to recall on the good things instead of saying, oh, I could have had a 65 today if I didn't three put 17 and knock one out of bounds down the 18th. So maybe just being aware of some of the talk that you have passed with your friends in the clubhouse is a, probably another important thing I suppose just well, to, I think you put the nail on the head there, yeah. Andy. You know, self-talk is so vitally, vitally important. Now, I think we know from what Carl's just said that I think we know what this guy's certainly talking to himself about since that day when he should have shot, should, could, would have shot 59. 
he's just reliving that every single time. Every single time he's reliving it, it hurts even more and more and more and more and more. Now, you know, who do you, you know, I always ask people, who's the person you speak most to in your life? And they say, well, my husband, my wife, my son, my daughter, mother, father, whatever it is. And then you think about it and say, oh, actually, no, it's me. Yeah, it's me. <laughs> so this guy, do you think, let's say this guy was my friend and he had shot 60 instead of 59. And every time I saw him, I gave him a hard time about that short putt he missed for 59. Do you think we would still be friends? Mm. I would think not. <laughs> he, wouldn't, he certainly wouldn't accept it from me, all that nip, nip, nip. But it's amazing how we, we think it's okay to chip away at ourselves. Yeah. But it has, it's like you know Chinese water torture. It has equally the same effect. It's just brutal. And if you keep giving yourself a hard time, you know, Carl introduced me to a great phrase a few years ago, about the thinker and the prover, what the thinker thinks the aimer aims to prove. You know, yeah. and I think, you know, I always have three, three putts every time I play. I always duff it in this bunker. I can never get out of this bunker. Guess what happens? See, I told you, I told you. Yeah. You know, we'd almost rather be right than good. See, I told you that was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that you know, self-talk. It happens all the time, doesn't it? We talk about it in oh, saying, yeah. well, look, you know, you, you, the way you talk about yourself and when you talk about yourself on the golf course and the decisions you make and what you say to yourself, it's like you are your own caddy and you are making those, you know, you are being told Absolutely. those things. If a caddy said to you, oh, you just three-putted the last green, you idiot. You know, what would the cat? what would you say to the caddy then? Yeah. yeah, you don't have that way you just dropped the bag. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. I mean, look, this is this has been fantastic so far. I mean, look, I want to do we just want to get a couple of questions. I definitely want to get a question on putting as well. Okay. So, so for you, Gary, just for the listeners to this, <laughs> we actually wrote down a few questions on putting, and we thought oh, we could go this route, we could go that route. We thought, you know what? We're just gonna leave it really open question. Okay. What is the what is the biggest opportunity? And maybe Carl, you can answer this afterwards. What's the biggest opportunity? For people listening to do with this in order to help them with their putting get better at pace pace okay. yeah simple as that how by paying attention to it i know it sounds <laughs> a really flippant response no no it's an awesome response but it's not you know we can only really influence what we pay attention to so mm -hmm. if we are paying attention to our shoulder alignment our backstroke our hand position ball position and all the rest of it Mm -hmm. and not really paying much attention to the ball and what it's we're trying to do with it, then we're going to struggle. Eve Muirhead gave you that one, obviously. Pardon? <laughs> about pace. Eve Muirhead obviously gave you that one. About yeah, well, absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've got to learn from the best, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very valid point, though, isn't it? You're, you're, you're spot on with curling. You know, what is it all about? Line and pace. Mm. But the line will be determined by the pace. The pace mm -hmm. determines the line. Yet, okay, let's see. Okay, Piers, you and I are playing against Andy and Carl on Sunday morning. So we've won the front nine, so we're pound up. Okay. That wouldn't happen. Easy. <laughs> four, four, up, four up after nine. <laughs> I, I, I'd, so, use, I'd use all my shots, Gary, so you wouldn't be able to. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all square after 17. You've got a putt on the last from 12 feet. So you've got another pound for the back nine, potentially another pound for the match. So there's, you know, there's three quid in total on the line here. You call me over because you're not entirely sure about this putt. What are you going to ask me? What's the line here? Yeah, what's the line here? Yeah. And if I say it's two balls outside the left <laughs> yeah. lip, I've got an, an inch outside the left lip, who's right and who's wrong? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Until we discuss pace, yeah. 
it's a completely irrelevant question. Yeah. And then what am I likely to say to you just as I walk off the green as you stand over that 12 foot? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Don't, don't be short now. So what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Look four feet past everyone says, Oh, great, great try. Give it a chance. Yeah. <laughs> no, that speed you didn't. <laughs> and it's and you see that. And and again, talking about awareness and reflection, a lot of people will not even be aware that that was actually what happened then. No, absolutely no, right. There was no right. conflict at all. No. So if you gave someone a, a relatively flat, relatively straight 12-foot putt, and they missed it three feet to the left, three feet to the right, they'd be appalled. <laughs> if they left it three feet short, oh, it's a great putt, just didn't quite hit it hard enough. Mm. If they knocked it three or four feet past, oh, it's a great putt, can't believe that didn't go in. Yeah. But because our attention has historically been on through training aids, through most or majority of instruction, it's all about line length, easier to see than paces. So yes. it's a bit more tangible almost than pace. So we, we tend to relate everything to line. So if it goes this much, this far, left or right, oh my God, that's horrendous. <laughs> Leave it a bit short, knock it a bit past. Oh, it's a great patch. Just didn't quite get the pace right. But you didn't get the pace right because all your attention was online. Mm. So going back to my, what could be perceived as a flippant comment about how do you get better at pace by paying attention to it, green reading. So yeah. green reading for me is more about pace than line. What we tend to do as golfers is we choose a line and then we decide how hard we're going to hit it. <laughs> If you flip that on its head and figure out how hard you're going to hit it first, because pace will determine the line. So you've got to figure out how hard you're going to hit the putt, and then you choose the line appropriate to that pace. I think that's a very good question for people to ask themselves next time I'm putting green, because I think that's something that, you know, we, we, we wrote down questions about green reading and things like that, and obviously pace, but a lot of people are very bad at green reading because they're not very good at pace. And perhaps because they're not looking for it. They're just looking mm, for the line. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not because they're bad at pace. They're just not paying attention to it. Paying attention. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally get it. Yeah, great stuff. There's something oh. that's so relevant that that, that you know, we, the reason why we actually wrote the, the first book, The Lost Art of Putting, was was because of a graphic that we, we came across about what's known as the effective hole size, whereby the actual size of the hole reduces relative to the pace that you hit the ball. Obviously the hole doesn't actually change size, but relative to, to the pace and, and the figures are staggering and, and, and the, the graphic was so stark for us that if you, if you knock a ball, I think it's only three foot past the hole, the actual size of the hole reduces by about 70%. So, you know, the idea that if you can get, if you could slightly improve your pace on a regular basis, you're actually you're actually making the hole much. We we call it the the three ball highway. And you, for for anybody listening, if you can imagine that you've got three balls tracking towards the hole with a little bit of right to left on it, and those three golf balls are going at just the right pace at dead weight pace. All three golf balls will fit in the hole. So the point being is that if three golf balls can fit in the hole, your line doesn't have to be perfect. There's a bit of a tolerance in terms of line if you get your pace good. But people set people tend to be so obsessed with perfect line. You know, you can see them, you know, lining up and obsession with the line on the ball and all this kind of. And, and I'm a, and that can blunt so much so much feel. You know, I'm not going to say to people don't use a line on the ball, 
but I would say people should experiment with that because for some people, the line really makes a difference and it improves them. But for other people, it can really get in the way and it can really hold their feel back. And we've, you know, a number of players who, who, who don't use the line, especially from sort of six feet and beyond. And it really frees them up to actually start to feel the pace of the put much better. Yeah, being, being a little bit less specific into a certain yes. point, you know, which yeah. just narrows everything down and causes that tension, having that little wider sort of, Area definitely is a, a free, a more of a free emotion, isn't it? We, we call it putting down the channel. You know, an, an image to have is that if you're obsessed with the line, we call it the razor's edge. It's like trying to keep the ball on the edge of a razor, which is pretty tough to do. But on the <laughs> other hand, on the on the other hand, if you imagine, if you practice it five hours a day, five hours a day, every day, <laughs> yeah, 10, eight days 20, a week, twenty thousand reps, ten thousand hours, whatever it is. But a, a good a good one to do is to is to get three golf balls on your carpet at home and put two, two golf clubs either side of the three balls and see that that's your actual channel. Now hit some putts on the, on the, on the putting on the, the, the carpet at home and see if you can get the golf ball between the two clubs. Now you don't have to have a perfect stroke to do that. You know, virtually everybody can do it time and time again. But what that does is when you, when you see a channel into the hole, as opposed to a line, for a lot of people, that really, really frees them up and it really allows them to sort of, as I say, tune much more into the to the feel of the pace rather than being obsessed with technical perfection before they even move the putter back. Yeah. Yeah. Nice That's a great message. Right, guys, look, thank you so much for your time. We're just going to finish on one question from each of you. Um, I suppose what from for, for you, Gary, what from off the back of this podcast? What is the one message that you'd like to say to the listeners? If there's one thing that you could share with the listeners today, one message, what would it be? And we'll sort of go to you as well, Carl. Yeah, relative to the short game, well, the one message I would say would obviously go by the lost start of the short game. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Available, that's all. (laughs) Uh, No, uh, on a serious note, learn, take a bit of time to, to figure out or try and learn a little bit about what you've got in your golf bag, wedge-wise. You know, have you got, when's the last time anyone went for a wedge fitting? And when you if you do go for a wedge fitting, is it just about gapping distances? Or is, are you trying to play a variety of different shots around the greens? You know, for me, always, anytime I do wedge fittings or help people select new wedges, I make sure I do it blind. I don't tell them what loft and bounce they have because it's very rarely do they get, are they best with what they think they're going to be best with, shall I say. So if we ask them to play a little pitch shot or a little chip shot, whatever, and just let them figure out which one works best for them. So learn a little bit more about the tools of your trade. Learn a little bit more about how you can get the club to interact with the turf. You know, I'm a strong believer that I think that, yes, it's important how the golf, club interacts with the golf ball but I think how it interacts how the club interacts with the surface where it's tightly mown fairway rough bunker how the, the back of the soul interacts with that's far far more important and how the ball behaves or reacts is almost secondary to that so go out and you know just have a look at your wedges and explore and experiment with a few different shots and a few different bounce and loft and grind options just to, to figure out what what works best for you because mm-hmm. not just not only are you going to play better shots, you're going to have more fun. You're going to probably shoot lower scores. And, you know, guess what? You might even smile. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Carl? Carl, what you got? Yeah, I think my, my one would tie, tie in with what Gary said. 
really. And, and we, we call it go first in the sense that we, we've all in the past played under the illusion that if I play good golf, I'll be happy. Um, unfortunately, if you're waiting for golf to make you feel happy, you tend to be waiting most of the time. Patient, <laughs> you know, and, and we, we we and especially with the you know with what's going on in the world at the moment and what has gone on in the world, I think it might seem a soft concept, but the whole idea about about gratitude, about you know being being very aware of the the immense privilege that you have if you're presented with the opportunity to play just one more round of golf. I mean, literally, you know, you, you, we, we take it so much for granted un, until, you know, the start reality of the, the sort of chaos of life confronts us. And, 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 you know, we're all, we're all going to be given a finite number of rounds and what, what, what arrogance that we all have that we think that they're going to, it's going to go on forever and ever. And, you know, far from that being just a sort of soft, fluffy idea, what we what we do understand is that when you actually are in a in a state of gratitude, the the the, the coherence that that creates in your system is actually a great performance state. It's actually a state that was probably going to allow you to play your best golf, but but you're going first. You're deciding to be happy first, or you're deciding to be grateful first, as opposed to waiting for the golf ball to uh, to, to make you do that. And the very worst that will happen if you if you if you sort of engage with that idea is that your, your experience of the game and your experience of others and your experience of the golf course begin to begin to evolve and change. Yeah, that's great. I think I think guys, I think you know again, thank you for doing this podcast, but thanks for educating us as well. You know, we were really looking forward to doing this because we know we're going to learn things. We've learned things over a few over the years. And normally we try to sort of recap the podcast. You've just done a good job with a couple of things there yourselves. But I think the, the best thing people can do is go and check out the lost art of short game. Obviously the last lost art of playing golf, lost art of putting definitely worth looking at as well. But obviously this is the newest release now. So we definitely would encourage people to go and check out that but we'll put the link in the show yeah, notes put the link well. in the show notes absolutely but if, as anyone else who wants to get any more information about yourselves uh gary first of all where should they go and see uh if they want to have a golf lesson with Ethan Muirhead, you know circling around <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't expect to be as good as her she's a bit better than most. yeah I get um, it. <laughs> you get a couple of the probably best place to go would just be to go to the archfield golf club website which is archfieldgolfclub.com there's an online booking system in there as now. There's a little bit about me and our performanceprinciples.co.uk. But obviously, if you want to find out a little bit more about the books, they're available on Amazon. Um, but we've got lots of content, blogs and videos and things, podcasts, various other podcasts. Not nearly as good as your podcast, obviously, guys. Thelostartofgolf.com. Awesome. And for you, Carl? Yeah, if, if anybody uh, wants to have a look at what I do, it's uh, my, my, my website's the themindfactor.com where if it's, if it's about sort of working with me one-to-one, there's, there's opportunities there. Um, but also from the coach element as well, I've, I've, for the last 15 years or so, I've run the Mind Factor certification course that we do live each year, but also there's, a, there's an online version of that for any, any coaches that are involved or prospective coaches involved in uh, wanting to coach more of a performance element to the game. And then uh, the podcast I have each week that comes out, the, the Brain Booster, which uh, you guys have been on a couple of times and uh, you know, we, we can share in, the, share in these ideas. 
I don't know why he keeps having his back, to be honest, Andy. Neither do I. <laughs> it's but interesting, no. yeah, but obviously the, the, the sort of professional certifications you do, that's where we first met you 20, sorry, 20, don't 2006. Say it. Don't say it. 16 years ago. Don't say it. Don't say it. Oh, wow. I think that, look, we could have well, we could have gone on for another three or four hours, no doubt, because we have just scratched the surface and obviously all your hard work has gone into these books. So anyone listening to this, go and check it out. There'll be some amazing reading for you but um for us that's just we just know that it's going to be so helpful to to get people playing the game better and i know you guys are, are on a mission very similar to ours which is just to get people having more fun and enjoying the game and playing better golf on the golf course and uh, these books will certainly do that as well yeah great job guys well done thanks for thanks yeah. fellas for having us and uh, thanks for all that you do for the game i think it's a very conscientious way that you go about putting your stuff together and uh, that really that really resonates and shines through in the work that you do appreciate yeah. that thank you thank you Carl. cheers guys awesome. thanks thanks again good to catch up see you soon